to the Data Skeptic bonus feed, where we release extended content on data science, statistics, machine learning, and artificial intelligence. Welcome to the first of a 10-part series in which I'll be reading Computing Machinery and Intelligence by Alan Turing. This is being released to coincide with a recent episode on the main feed of the Data Skeptic podcast entitled The Imitation Game. There we tried to share a fun and accessible popularist version of this discussion, and we're glad some of you found your way here to the more academic discussion. I do my best to stay as true as possible to the original text. There are a few places where I made some very minor adjustments and changes in order to facilitate the translation to the audio format. For example, there's one place where Turing essentially says a long, fictitious number, and rather than read you off a bunch of random digits, I just say a really, really large number. I made a few small changes like that, all with the intention of making this more clear. Following the reading of each section, there'll be a short musical interlude, and then I'll come back with some informal comments. Those comments are my own. They're off the top of my head for the most part. I hope you enjoy them, but don't regard them with the same official, canonical sense you do the original text. Well, let's get started then. Computing Machinery and Intelligence by Alan Turing Section 1. The Imitation Game I propose to consider the question, can machines think? This should begin with definitions of the meaning of the terms machine and think. The definitions might be framed so as to reflect so far as possible the normal use of the words, but this attitude is dangerous. If the meaning of the words machine and think are to be found by examining how they are commonly used, it is difficult to escape the conclusion that the meaning and the answer to the question, can machines think, is to be sought in a statistical survey such as a Gallup poll. But this is absurd. Instead of attempting such a definition, I shall replace the question by another, which is closely related to it and is expressed in relatively unambiguous words. The new form of the problem can be described in terms of a game, which we call the imitation game. It is played with three people, a man, a woman, and an interrogator, who may be of either sex. The interrogator stays in a room apart from the other two. The objective of the game is for the interrogator to determine which of the other two is the man and which is the woman. He knows them by labels X and Y. And at the end of the game, he says either X is the man and Y is the woman, or X is the woman and Y is the man. The interrogator is allowed to put questions to the man and the woman thus. Will player one please tell me the length of his or her hair? Now suppose player one is actually a man. Then the man must answer. It is the man's object in the game to try and cause the interrogator to make the wrong identification. His answer might therefore be, My hair is shingled and the longest strands are about nine inches long. In order that tones of voice may not help the interrogator, the answers should be written, or better still, typewritten. The ideal arrangement is to have a teleprinter communicating between two rooms. Alternatively, the question and answers can be repeated by an intermediary. The object of the game for player two is to help the interrogator. The best strategy for her is probably to give truthful answers. She can add such things as, I am the woman, don't listen to him, to her answers, but it will avail nothing as the man can make similar remarks. We now ask the question, what will happen when a machine takes the part of the man in this game? Will the interrogator decide wrongly as often when the game is played like this as he does when the game is played between a man and a woman? These questions replace our original, can machines think?
Okay, we are off to a great start. This is the first section. As a reminder, after each reading, I'm going to share a few of my thoughts. The key takeaway for me in this part is that Turing really wants to ask the question, can a machine think? Don't we all? Yet he realizes this is a problematic and squishy question. It's hard to define exactly what we mean with any precision. So Turing tells us he's going to convince us that this imitation game, it can substitute for the question. Or not just substitute, but these are isomorphic to one another in some way. Okay, we get the idea. We didn't totally hear the thought behind it. Burden of proof is on Turing. He'll get to that in the next sections. As Turing wrote this in 1950, his prediction of 50 years in the future, of course, was the year 2000. And we did not hit the benchmark he set, nor are we there today. So did Turing have a basis for this, or was he just shooting in the dark? I mean, I don't know how rigorous of a forecast he did. It's a bit like asking me, when do I think I'll be able to purchase my first self-driving car? I mean, obviously that's coming. I'm thinking like, I don't know, 10 years out maybe? If I wanted to take the question more seriously, I would study the progress of the companies, ask lawyers about how long these sorts of processes take, and back into some much more formal and rigorous number, which, albeit probably wouldn't have that much more accuracy than the guess would anyways. But nonetheless, something like that could be done. I think Turing's prediction is more the former than the latter. But nevertheless, how is it Turing was confident? Well, he was confident because he understood the Turing machine. It's not necessarily obvious from the text, but there is a deeper truth to this. The other key paper in Turing's writings you want to look at is On Computable Numbers with an Application to the Enschiedung's Problem. The Enschiedung's Problem is an interesting one. It was proposed by the famous mathematician David Hilbert. And I often wonder if Hilbert knew how profound this question was or if he found it more of a curiosity. But basically the question is this. Given some first-order logic statement... And if you don't know what that is, it's a formal language of logic with predicates and things like this. It's worth looking up, but you can get by the argument without a knowledge of it. Basically, given some statement in first-order logic, he wondered if you could determine if certain statements were universally true or universally false. You know, so the, the statement, all prime numbers are odd, that's universally true. The opposite of odd is even, and even is therefore not prime. But for more complex examples, it's non-obvious. Turing was thinking about this problem when he came up with the concept of the Turing machine, the most elementary description of the act of computation, and the most minimal description of a machine that has the computational power of modern computers. Setting aside the caveat about quantum computing, these very simple Turing machines, they can compute anything, anything that is intuitively computable, that is. Now, Turing was chasing that problem posed by David Hilbert, and he found his way to the halting problem, another hallmark of Turing's work. And a foundational concept in computer science. And somewhere in understanding what computers can and cannot do, and I guess the third area, those things for which we've yet to establish whether a computer can or can't do them, or can or can't do them in reasonable circumstances, like maybe in polynomial time. And thinking about all these things, it's rather natural one would eventually ask the question, well, can a machine think? All right, everybody, join me next time when we jump into section two, critique of the new problem. There, Turing will convince us that his imitation game is as good as asking the question, can a machine think? Data Skeptic is a listener-supported program. To support the show, visit dataskeptic.com and click on the membership tab.